0: belong to Christ. Sing it with me. I don't belong. I don't belong to riches, treasures don't satisfy. Power and pleasures that always run dry, but I belong to Christ. Oh, I don't belong to opinions, values defined by this world, approval and praise that change every day. But I belong to Christ. I
1: you defined by this world. Approval and praise that change every day, but I belong fire power and pleasures that always run dry but i belong
2: to Christ. Thank you, and thank you that you love us and that you love your children all throughout the world god god we we look forward to worshiping you this morning and learning and growing deeper th- through the study of your word in jesus name amen
0: Thank Deep-
3: this unity with itself and with one another, we get to preserve that, amen, let's sing about our hope, Jesus.
4: Dressed in his.
3: Invite like you to go ahead and be seated. We're gonna do a new song. It's a staple song for me for the past several years. That has come out of a staple passage of scripture for me, and it's uh, Galatians two twenty. It's the truth that uh, that my old self has been crucified with Christ. And because of that, I, the old man, the old me, the old self, no longer even lives. But now it's Christ who lives in me and lives through me. And during this time, I still have, we still have, in these physical bodies here on planet Earth, I now, we now, live by full confidence and faith in Jesus. For Christian living, I'm looking to Jesus. Christ in me to be Christ through me. For expressing Christ, I'm looking to Jesus, Christ in me to be Christ through me. Any power or hope of Christian living, any power or hope of ever expressing Jesus, bearing one another in love is simply still Jesus. It's Christ in us, it's Christ through us, so family, new family, fellowship family, Let's remember this when we find ourselves in moments that require humility, gentleness, and patience. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let's remember that we are indwelt with the actual spirit of Christ and that Christ and Christ in us still has the market cornered on expressing himself. Did you catch that? Christ and Christ in us, he's got the market cornered. On expressing himself so let's start every day by remembering that we have indeed been crucified with Christ the old self the old man no longer even lives rather it's Christ now that lives in us and through us we can live now by fully trusting fully leaning and fully depending on Jesus we can live by faith in Christ knowing that it's Christ at work in us and it's Christ at work in through us. We can walk in a manner worthy of our calling by simply and in complete dependence on Jesus. Trust Jesus Christ in us and through us every step of the way. Amen. This next song is called Life Defined.
0: It is my pleasure To say No, this Hallo!
3: all means? What does it mean that we've been crucified? What does it mean that you now live in us? Father, we thank you for the tutor and the teacher and the helper that we have in your spirit. So, Father, lead us into the truth of what it means, Lord. Let it bring the freedom that it's intended to bring. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
2: Well, Fellowship Rogers, we're at the midway point. We are at the midway point of the fall school season. Can you believe that? There are pumpkins everywhere, and there's 10 more Saturdays until Christmas. Did you hear that? We're physically at the midway point, geographically. Pleasant Grove Road is the Mason-Dixon line of northwest Arkansas. Everything below us is south. Everything above us is north. We're at the midway point. We're at the midway point of the college football season, six games behind us, six games before us, before the playoffs. We're about to, in just a few weeks, vote in midterm elections. We're at the midway point, and Fellowship Rogers, in our teaching series, is following along in suit. We are actually at the midway point of our teaching series in the book of Ephesians. In fact, open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter Four, we've got three chapters behind us in the rearview mirror. We've got uh, three chapters ahead of us. So we're continuing studying this New Testament letter or epistle written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. We've completed six of 12 sermons in this series and today we turn the corner. And as we turn the corner, I want you to observe something. I want you to see that there's about to be a theme change in the letter. In Ephesians, it breaks down really cleanly. The the first half of the book is focused on doctrine. The second half of the book will focus on duty. Chapters one to three, theology. Chapters four to six, practice. The first half of the book, creed. The last half, conduct. What we've been studying is about our identity, our being in Christ in the first three chapters. Now we turn the corner and we're going to study our doing. We're going to uh, move on from what Christ has done for us, and we're gonna start to ask the question, what should we do for him? And this is a pattern in the Apostle Paul's writings. You see it clearly in Romans, first 11 chapters of Romans, doctrine, 12 and on. Judy, you see it in Colossians, and we see it here in Ephesians. This is the way that Paul wrote. And what it means for us is that our is about to get personal. Possibly convicting And certainly practical. So let's begin by looking at the first verse of today's text, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul jumps right in with a strong. Exhortation in this door hinge verse of the whole book. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. These words were penned in a Roman prison cell. The Apostle Paul, the one willing to pay any price, the one willing to make any sacrifice necessary to follow Jesus, now called upon the church at Ephesus to live out their calling. His chains created in him a bold intensity rather than a need for sympathy. And from his own position, his own passionate conviction, he urged the Ephesian believers to devote themselves to Christ, to live lives worthy of Jesus, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, this live-worthy concept was a go-to for the Apostle Paul. He would say something very similar to the Philippians and to the Colossians and to the Thessalonians. The, the Apostle Paul is using this familiar phrase, live worthy, to turn up the heat here in verse one of chapter four. He, he's taught them in chapters one to three. He's prayed for them in chapters one to three. Now he urges them. The, the Greek word literally could be rendered I beg you, he's imploring them. We got any King James fans in here? Any old school people? I love how the King James version, the old version renders verse one. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. The apostle is beseeching. He's pleading with them. He's exhorting them to live a life that is deserving of the crucified Savior and the resurrected King. So our text today begins with a simple and clear yet challenging idea. We're called to live worthy of Christ. We're going to start there and we're going to end there today. It's a challenge, not just for the Ephesian church, but for us as well. Verse 1 proclaims it declares that Jesus is worthy of a life devoted to him a life lived in obedience to him a life wholly surrendered to him we are challenged as believers in Christ to represent him well on this earth to walk worthy of the Lord now surely you're familiar with this concept of living worthy in team sports we talk about playing for the team on the front of the jersey more than the individual name on the back of the jersey. Maybe you come from a family where your parents or your grandparents talk to you about living in such a way that you brought honor to the family name. We taught our kids that. In fact, in the Hannon household, we used to say when it came to grades and schooling, there's no B in Hannon. It was our playful, tongue-in-cheek way of saying, we want you to do your best, and we want you to try to get A's. My daughter would say, but there's a C in grace. (laughs) We'll see how that works out for you. Maybe you work for a company, and in your policy manual, or maybe even in your contract, there's a phrase that you can actually be let go for behavior unbecoming or for shame being brought to the company name or to your employer. Advertisers expect that those who promote their products will embody their company values. They'll live worthy of the product. Perhaps you're familiar with the phrase, ride for the brand. It's cowboy talk. The idea was that the ranch hand would would. Work in a way that would properly represent the outfitter or the, the ranch that was branded into the hide of the herd. You ride for the brand. And some of those ranch hands would actually take the brand on their own skin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were purchased at a price and you ride for the brand. You're encouraged here in verse 1 to live worthy of your calling, that we are to live our daily lives in honor of, in a deserving manner to the one who purchased our eternal life. Now, let me pause here. Anytime we talk about deeds or we talk about duties to Christ or obedience to Christ, I just want to remind you that we don't live worthy to earn his love. We're not trying to work our way to heaven. Does everybody understand that? No, we live lives worthy because we have this debt of gratitude for all we've been given in Christ that we could never repay. So we don't obey him. We don't live him, live for him out of duty but out of delight. What a privilege it is to live in such a way that we honor our king. So what is living a life worthy look like. Well, that's the whole rest of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 2, all the way through the very last verse in chapter 6, it's going to get really practical. But in our immediate context, the next 15 verses, the Apostle Paul is going to lay out four marks of a life lived worthy of our calling. Four qualities, if you will, four practices that honor Christ. Verse 2, he'll start with humility. Verse Verses three to six, unity. Verses seven to 12, diversity. And he'll close out verses 13 to 16 with maturity. That'll be the outline that, that we follow. These were the four things that were on the heart of the apostle for the community of believers at the church at Ephesus. Now, these aren't the only four marks of a life lived worthy, but they're a good start. They, they are certainly a good challenge for the church at Ephesus. And also, I think, for you and for me, Well, so let's work through each one. Verse 2 gives us our first mark of a life lived worthy humility. It reads this way Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. When it comes to relating to people within the church, the body of Christ, the community of believers, and people on this earth, be humble. gentle and patient, forbearing in love. A life lived worthy plays well with others. And it all begins with humility. What is humility? Well, humility is a state of thinking that flows from a a right view of both God and self. It's having an accurate view of oneself in light of who created you. Not an over-inflated view or an overvalued view. I love what C.S. Lewis said about attaining humility. He said, "If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, and a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited. Indeed, according to Lewis, step one of acquiring humility is to admit your pride. And then, if you think you're not prideful, see step one. Dr. John Stott, another Englishman, said this about humility in relation to living our lives worthy, living as disciples of Christ. He said, at every stage of our Christian development, in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy. Humility, our greatest friend. Humility is the essential starting place for living lives worthy of Jesus. John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must what? That's humility. The scriptures say that God opposes the proud. Opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse two continues by adding to humility humility. Gentleness, be completely humble and gentle. To be gentle is to be meek, it's to be kind, it's to be pleasant to others, it's to be moderate, not extreme, amiable, not disagreeable or disruptive. Some of us in here are about as gentle as barbed wire. Our demeanor is abrasive or disruptive, yet the scriptures describe a spirit-filled spirit filled Believer as a gentle person. It goes on to say, be patient, endure annoyances and delays without complaint or disruption or frustration. Be long tempered when faced with unmet expectations. We live in an impatient world, don't we? A world that demands instantaneous information and gratification. We've become accustomed to same-day delivery, high-speed downloads, easy bends, rocket mortgages, and hurry-up offenses. It seems like patience is a lost virtue. Now I want to pause and point something out obvious for those of you who know me. I'm the last person that needs to give a sermon on humility, gentleness, and patience. Amen? <laughs> that was a little loud. Tim, you need some humility. Just kidding. So in lieu of writing my letter of resignation, I'll just offer a confession. That in those three areas, the Lord's not done with me yet. There's still ground to be taken. How about you? Are you humble? Or do you have an inflated view of yourself? Are you gentle or do you come across as harsh? Are you patient? Are you long-suffering in unmet expectations? This opening challenge closes with an exhortation to bear with one another in love, to persevere with those around us in a loving demeanor, to nurture and care for people over the long haul through the good and the bad. This initial challenge is great, Be humble, be gentle, be patient, forbear with one another in love and don't mistake these qualities for weakness because they're actually strength under control. Hey, is this getting practical enough for you? (laughs) We're only in verse two. Anybody wanna go back and talk about the Jew-Gentile reconciliation again? (laughs) Are you starting to sweat? Let's move on to verse three through six. The second mark of a life lived worthy is unity. Look at verse 3. It says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God of, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. A life lived worthy pursues Unity. Some would even say that unity is the dominating theme of this entire passage. Oneness with God should lead to oneness with others. A few weeks ago, John Barclay said that that when we're reconciled with God, it should lead to living reconciled to others. And look at the repetition in this section of the scriptures. The word one is repeated seven times In just four verses, and the word all is repeated four times of all, over all, through all, and in all. It seems clear that in Christ we are all for one and one for what? All. We should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We should work hard at preserving oneness. We should place a high value on harmony and solidarity. And when it comes to the body of Christ, we should uphold the cohesiveness of the whole over our individual preferences and opinions. As Paul said, we should preserve the bond of peace. And this should certainly be true inside the church, but I would think also as we live our lives out in our neighborhoods and marketplace as well. And if you look at the text, it seems that the key to unity is to focus on what we have in common instead of nitpicking on where we are different. And that's not the current vibe of our society, is it? Right now, our society is more often focused on division over our differences than it is uniting around our commonalities. We live in an age of polarization, but that's not how the church is described in the passage. As a church, we are one body, and dwelled by one Holy Spirit, called to one hope, the hope of Jesus, the Son of God, crucified on our behalf, resurrected to conquer sin and death. We have one hope in heaven. And together, we serve one Lord, and we have one faith, and we have one baptism. We share the same story. I once was lost, but now am found. I once was blind, but now I see. I want you to think about it with me. We're all in this room different from one another, different in height and weight and age and race and gender and marital status and income level, maybe even political opinion. We cheer for different teams, attend different schools, appreciate different types of music and hold different opinions. Yet in Christ, we all love and worship and serve one God and Father who is of all, over all, through all, and in all. So we have a job to do. We actually have an assignment from the Lord. Verse three says that we are to strive for harmony, to make every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit, to keep the bond of peace. Our oneness with God should cultivate oneness with one another. So let me give you a really practical application for preserving unity. That when it comes to... uh, Issues in life that are not life and death, and they're not issues of heresy and orthodoxy. Drop the rope. Choose harmony over division. Choose relationship over being right. And let's preserve the bond of peace. Hey, the passage is offering us four marks of a life lived worthy. So we've looked at humility, we've looked at unity. The next mark is to embrace our diversity. Let me read the text and I'll explain. Look with me at verse seven. It says, but to each one of us, a grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, when the passage calls for unity, It's talking about our togetherness, but at the same time, it celebrates our diversity. Now, the passage is not talking about diversity like we normally understand the term, like diversity of of age or race or nationality. It's actually speaking here of diversity of gifting. Verse 7 says that to each one, grace has been given. It's speaking of spiritual gifts or talents Each one of us has been given an ability or a role or a skill that we can use to serve the whole. He goes on in verses 11 to 12 to name some of those gifts or those manifestations of grace. Some are apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors or teachers, and then look at the expected result in verse 12. Those gifts, those skills, those roles exist to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. He equipped the church. He outfitted the body of Christ with diverse gifts so that the body could grow deeper in Christ and be more effective for Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven is one of my favorite verses on spiritual gifts. It says, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. Check this out. As a follower of Jesus, who is indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, you've been given a gift or some gifts, a talent, a skill that is to be shared for the benefit of the body of Christ. You've been given an ability that is there to help you perform the task that God has called you to. And Paul calls your gift a grace. You've been given this manifestation of the spirit for the common good. You've been blessed to be a blessing. Now, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, we can help with that. On our website, we have an assessment, a spiritual gifts test, if you will. You can go to fellowshiprogers.org forward slash spiritual gifts and there's just a little uh, assessment tool there that you can use. And I would encourage you to discover your spiritual gift And of course, deploy it. Belong, grow, what? Serve, serve. Now let me make a couple of comments on spiritual gifts. Number one is that your spiritual gift is something that comes naturally to you. It isn't something that's a burden to you. It isn't something that drains you of energy. And it's something that others see in you. You've been encouraged when you've deployed this gift. Others uh, give you compliments about this gift. I also would encourage you to think through your spiritual gifting as something that's been entrusted to you for you to be a steward. of. It's not something that we wanna sit on, but something that we want to share. And of course, your spiritual gift makes a difference in the kingdom of God. So discover your spiritual gifting and deploy it. Now, you may have noticed that we skipped verses eight to 10. Did any of you type A personality people notice that? And you've been over there typing an email to the elders about how we've become soft as a church. Now, I wanted you to see the connection between verse 7 and verses 11 and 12. Let's tackle verses 8 to 10 as well. Because here, Paul is going to talk about the source of our gifts. But he's going to do so in a creative way. And spoiler alert, the source of our gifts is who? Jesus, very good. This is what verse 8 says. This is why it says, and Paul now quotes from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul borrows imagery here from Psalm 68 to poetically describe Jesus as a source of our gifting. In Psalm 68, it describes the Lord, triumphant, like an army general who ascends the mountain after his victory, receiving gifts from the plunder. But here, Paul describes Jesus, the conquering king who ascended to heaven and empowered us with spiritual gifts. He refers to the ascension of Jesus, As in contrast to his descending to the earth. You remember Bethlehem and the the manger, summary. We've all been given gifts to build up the body of Christ. And those gifts come from Jesus, our ascended, conquering king. Let's move to the fourth mark. The fourth characteristic of living lives worthy is maturity. As the gifts are deployed, the body is built up. Verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be like infants tossed back and forth by the waves. And blown here and there by every wind of teaching and every cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. The fourth mark of living a life worthy is maturity. Spiritual maturity. In context, the purpose of the spiritual gifts is to enable the body to mature and grow deep roots, to have a solid foundation, to become fully devoted followers of Jesus, to become more godly. I love how verse 13 reads What does maturity look like? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, the scriptures explicitly and repeatedly declare. That there is both a hope for and an expectation of our spiritual maturity in the church. That each of us would grow up in our faith. Much like a child matures into adulthood, we are to progress in our knowledge and character of Christ. This is a mark of a life lived worthy. And around here at Fellowship Rogers, we talk a lot about the expectation of spiritual maturity. In fact, we have a picture of what that looks like. Are you ready for it? Are you tired of it? We're gonna keep it before you, the spiritual growth wheel. As you can see, it uses that very uh, uh, wording that we see in our passage today. The picture portrays the spiritual life this way, that you are born separated from God. You don't know anything about it. Separated from him by your sin. But then you're born again at some point in your life. You convert uh, through belief and repentance. And then you're just an infant in Christ. But God doesn't expect you to stay there. You move from spiritual infancy to spiritual childhood where you begin to participate in the family of God. You know how to to read your Bible. You participate in the the worship services of the church. But God doesn't expect you to stay there. You move into becoming a disciple of Christ, a young adult believer, a a person who's now making a contribution whose focus is not just on what they can get from the church but what they can contribute and then eventually into spiritual parenthood which helps others experience everything we just talked about. Are y'all familiar with this? Are you tired of this? I'm going to keep it before you because I believe it's God's will for your life. And I believe that we actually see it in today's passage. Look at the language of verse 14. It says, then we will no longer be what? Infants. Tossed back and forth. Blown here and there. The passage casts vision for moving past spiritual infancy and on to spiritual maturity. Now, when we mature, when we grow up in the faith, we will no longer be infants. We'll no longer be like spiritual children tossed back and forth by every wind and wave. We'll no longer be like infants who are shallow and unstable in their faith, who vacillate between following Jesus and the culture around them, who believe parts of the Bible but never wholly submit to its authority, We will be mature, no longer like infants who partially participate in the church, but only when it doesn't inconvenience them or interfere with their hobbies or their kids' activities. Like infants who were easily influenced by the latest book or podcast or politician who were vulnerable to temptation and deception. The passage visually describes the spiritually immature of being like a raft Tossed back and forth by the stormy sea, entirely at the mercy of the shifting winds which blow it here and there. Maybe spiritual infancy describes where you're at today. You've got faith, but it's just a shallow faith. You go back and forth. You're in and out. You're committed, and then distracted. And the passage paints a picture that you would no longer be a spiritual infant, that you would move on to spiritual maturity. Look at verse 14, how it, how it ends. It actually gives a warning with a serious tone to it. It, it pictures the spiritually immature as being influenced by evildoers. Just like a child would be at risk if left alone on city streets full of crafty and deceitful schemers, so the shallow believer who attempts to navigate a world filled with half-truths and temptations and lies and deceptive messages is vulnerable. Verses 15 and 16 return to describing maturity in the church. Instead, so instead of being like an infant tossed back and forth, Speaking truth and love, we will grow to become uh, in every respect the mature body of Christ, of him who is the head. From him, the whole body joined together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up, each part doing its work. So instead of being like a spiritual infant tossed about by the winds and the waves, a healthy church will grow to maturity, much like a human body that grows strong and healthy Each member of the body doing its part, supporting, holding together, building up. If you look at the passage, it actually says that spiritual maturity is a product of speaking truth and love. We cannot grow up spiritually without speaking truth and hearing truth. But don't forget that truth is best conveyed through the context of a loving relationship. I don't know who said it, but I've always heard that Love without truth is too soft. But truth without love is too harsh. We've got to bring balance to both, speaking truth and love. So the goal is for us to grow to maturity as a community of faith. And I think this is interesting. It's actually speaking of maturity as a collective measure. Have you you ever thought about it in that way? Surely you've thought about it individually individually. That we as individuals can be mature or immature. But have you ever thought about it as a measure of a church as a whole? And if that's true, I wonder what the status of Fellowship Rogers is right now. Are we a mature church? Or are we immature? I'll leave it for you to think about and pray about. So, a life lived worthy is one that pursues maturity. This is true of us as individuals. It's also true of us as a church. Let's wrap it up back to the original idea and calling. It's really simple today. We are called to live worthy of Christ in humility, in unity, in diversity. And immaturity. Jesus is worthy of a life lived devoted to Him. We should aim to represent Him well. He is deserving of our every effort. We ride for the what brand. So, how are you doing on that? I love how the passage actually gives us a way to grade ourselves out. As you look up there at those four marks, how are you doing? Which one would you say is your greatest strength right now? And where do you need the most improvement? Let's go to the Lord and pray about it. Lord Jesus, as we think about the cross and how you poured yourself out and gave your all for us, Lord, I pray that we in turn, not out of duty, not out of trying to earn your love, but just out of our privilege and delight would give our all to you. Lord, I pray that we would live worthy of our calling this week. So Holy Spirit of God, as we enter into this practical part of the book, I pray that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would encourage us where we need encouraging. And just take a moment right now, just between you and the Lord, and ask him, Lord, What do you want me to do for you this week? Where do I need to improve? And as he speaks, follow his leadership as he convicts your heart.
3: this prayer together. It's not on the screen, but just in your heart, you can agree. Lord, thank you for your grace in calling us to unity with you and with one another. We praise you for joining us together to grow in maturity and the fullness of Christ. May we speak truth in love to build up one another as you call us to humble, gentle, and patient opportunities to love others this morning if you'd like to pray with somebody or you need prayer the um let me see if i can get it right seven the sevens the sevens are in the prayer room and if not i love you we have an innate inborn love given to us by god amen so go love each other and uh be safe we'll see you next week